I'm listening to the booms of the rounds being taken off. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think I, I don't feel like I saved his life. I feel like we just had a moment together there. And that happens a lot with the people you serve with. Welcome to Conflict Chronicles, the podcast where battlefield stories are told. Share in the physical and mental experiences of those who have been on the front line of conflict. I am your host, Neil. This show may contain adult language and strong themes from conflict zones. Listener discretion is advised. My next guest is William Candelaria, born San Juno, Puerto Rico in 1983. Having spent much of his childhood moving around South America, they finally settled in North Chicago, Illinois. He was raised by a single parent and the second of four children. He joined the United States Army in April 2003, right after completing training in manufacturing and obtaining his general education development certificate. He was recruited into the United States Army, even clearing some of his prior misdemeanors that he'd obtained due to a racially motivated incident against him. During this time, he also met his wife, now of 18 years. Only 48 hours after getting married to his wife, he was off to Fort Benning, Georgia, A Company, 2nd 54th, 4th Platoon. He excelled in training and was the only person to obtain expert marksman badge out of all four platoons in company rotation. Graduating in September 2003, within the same month he was stationed to 101 Airborne Division and with only two weeks to settle his family in Clarksville, Tennessee, he shipped off to Iraq for his first of three tours. William is telling his story from the streets of Chicago to his experiences of conflict now and how he's coping. Welcome, William. Just why did you join the Army? I uh, joined the Army just last minute. If, if you would have asked me any time before April 1st if what I thought about the military branches, I'd probably tell you no way. It was kind of a surprise to me joining the Army. It was kind of a surprise to my friends. It was kind of a surprise to my family and my immediate wife at that time. What was the turning point? Statistics have always been against me. I grew up in a very physically, physical abusive background. So statistically, people were, you're going to be just the same as your parents were. And being Hispanic, you know, I had numbers pinned against me. I wasn't going to live past the age of 21. I would be a baby daddy by the age of 16. The area I lived around was drug, more drug riddled than gang riddled, I would say. So I didn't want to be another statistic. It's a pretty compelling story. I mean, the fact that you want to break that cycle, what was that experience like when you joined? You know, you watch a lot of movies on it and it kind of already paints uh, an outline, but when the colors are added to the picture, the, you know, the, the, the two dimensional becomes three dimensional. There's depth. I had a new wife. But again, she 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 had no idea I had joined the army. She was like, maybe after our second day of being married. So it was a bit of a bit of a surprise then for her. Yeah, but I'm used to surprises. I like surprises. It keeps you on your toes. You know, uh, one thing that I learned at the end of my whole military career, one of the things I learned is complacency. 
complacency kills when you are comfortable in your neighborhood, when you're comfortable in a war zone, that's when bad things start happening. So I always have to stay on my toe, even on my toes, even with my child's, my children, I have to be on my toes constantly. So you go through basic training, you pass out in your training, you get posted to your unit. Yeah, that happened in a blink of an eye. I kind of assumed as much, but I always tend to think of the worst case scenario. That way the bar is pretty low. <laughs> so when I do get good news, it's a big surprise. Uh, if I get bad news, it's a little surprise, you know. But uh, ironically enough, I ended up going to basic with some really good guys. Um, and I had really great drill sergeants. So you, you went from basic, you went to unit and then off to Iraq. And so what year was this as well? This was around September, 2003, the same year I went, I signed off. It was so quick. I actually was one of the last people pushed because they had already pushed through Iraq from Kuwait and they had settled down about three days, uh, about 35 minutes south from Missoula. So I had a lot of catching up to do. They had just finished the uh, mission on Uday, Saddam's son. So everybody was coming back and settling down. Training started back up. Even when you're in a war zone, there's still training going on there. So, and the crazy part is they sent me to Iraq with a flak vest, like a Vietnam flak vest. No, no plates. They didn't even give me a weapon. We made a couple stops before going to Kuwait. I don't know why we, we went commercial, but we made a couple stops from Shannon. That's Shannon in Ireland. Yeah. And it smells beautiful over there. It smells exactly how I thought it would smell like, you know, farmy, almost coffee-ish, you know. Once we get to Kuwait, though, it's a different, different sense of taste and smell. The heat, you can actually taste it. They, you don't come down a ramp. They just open the doors and they're like, all right, everybody out. It's all sand. It's very dry. You, you're constantly wearing long sleeve, short sleeve. They're trying to figure out where to, send, where to send you. So I got sent from Kuwait three days driving up a, a road to uh, Key West is the place. So, I, you know, being the new guy, you know, that's at any, any job. Being the new guy, you know, you're going to have to pay your dues some way or somehow. And you didn't know anyone in this unit. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the new guy. I'm the cherry. That's, we call them cherries. So that's, a, that's the term in the U.S. military, a cherry. Yeah, we call them cherries, you know, and then uh, when they have when your leaders feel like you have uh, surpassed or done, your, you know, done your duties, uh, usually after, you know, your first rank, uh, they, they say they picked your stem. So you're still a cherry, but you're a cherry without a stem. So I think that has to do somewhere around the GI Bill or Pope. at that time. It was the GI Bill after you paid off your GI Bill. So you're looking at um, you were out there for a year initially the first time. First time I was initially there for, I want to say eight months total, but we had a month or two where we had to train the, uh, the unit that was coming in. So there was a few guys that stayed behind, a few leadership to show everybody the ropes. We teach them the ropes and then we slowly, you know, because you don't want to move a whole, whole unit like that in one hit. And so what were you doing uh, in that base? You were out patrolling from there? Yeah, I was attached to a motor platoon. We dealt with 81s. That's 81 millimeter motors? Yeah, 81 millimeter motors. And um, 
we had just finished. Well, I got there and they're like, you know, you're in luck. We're going to go out to dry missions. So we would go out outside, outside the fob to do these dry missions, you know, shoot some motor rounds. And, you know, they would tell you, we'll give you three days off when we get back. We're going to be out here a week. So I'll give you two days, three days off. You come back, you do what you got to do. But primarily is clean your weapons, clean the equipment, make sure you got everything for the next mission if it pops off and then go handle your duties, which is working out, eating and calling back home, basically. Um, but uh, during those that si- those six months, uh, right after that mission, uh, I remember I was around maybe 11 o'clock at night. I thought the sun was coming up and we were near a pipeline. And I guess I, I don't call them terrorists. I just call them Saddam loyalists or because that's basically what it was in Iraq. It wasn't really terrorists. It was more people who were loyal to Saddam. Well, they ended up blowing up a pipeline. And I remember when I seen it, I thought the sun was coming up and I was like, how long was I talking to my wife? And uh, sure enough, uh, it was really a ball of fire. So I started running to my platoon and they're like, you're in luck. We're going to guard the pipeline now. So I knew at that point, this is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. This oil, this, uh, this pipeline. So we guarded a pipeline from ever being blown, blown up again. And uh, that worked really well. Because we then later uh, trained the uh, Iraqi army. So let's talk about and fast forward to your next deployment. So you go back. How long were you back in the United States? I want to say a little over a year. And then I was deployed again in September, maybe, maybe a little after September. And that was a full year. We ended up being stationed somewhere in Fob McHenry, which was by one of the worst towns. Baghdad's pretty bad. Mazul's okay. Hawija was like right in between both of those things, you know? Um, it's like the suburban neighborhoods in Chicago, you know, it's just right in between, you know? During that time, we got to train the Iraqi army. So we trained over 300, more than 300 Iraqi armies in a six month period. And uh, we taught them how to, sh- you know, clear urban terrain, um, how to zero their weapons, you know, how not to flag their buddies. And uh, then afterwards, we deployed them, you know, and seeing how they executed a court on search in Hawija. So uh, one of the greatest Iraqi people I've worked with, uh, soldier I've worked with, is has to be a Captain Ali. Uh, he We called him Motorcycle Mustache because that's what he had. He, he just loved that American persona of, you know, motorcycle, you know. And uh, because I spoke Arabic, he... Oh, Candelaria. And he would say my name right. But uh, later on, I guess the other soldiers started calling me Saddam Jadad, which I didn't like the Saddam part. But I'm like, who's this Saddam Jadad guy? And they're like, oh, it's a singer from Hawija. I was like, okay, maybe they won't shoot the celebrity, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the lookalike celebrity. So maybe I'm safe over here. But um, those, that's probably where I've met the most encounter of Saddam loyalists. And, and there weren't even Iraqi army, there's just your normal civilians. The other half of that deployment, we actually trained the command center on how to deploy these units. And uh, there was always something going on between the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police. They didn't never trusted each other. I don't know if one of the Iraqi police's cousins, family members, one of them ended up putting an ID where we were at. So that's improvised explosive device. Yeah, they, it was a trigger, pressure trigger. 
and a donkey ended up hitting it. <laughs> this donkey ended up blowing up into pieces. And it was right during the time the Iraqi army was passing through and all that blood splattered on their commander. They were under the impression that their commander had died. So this crazy firefight started between Iraqi police and Iraqi army. And we're just sitting there like everybody's trying to know what commanders and leaders are trying to figure out what is going on. And you never want to hear that answer. I don't know. I don't know. And what do you mean you don't know? I don't know. What do you mean? And it was at one of those moments where I got up in between this firefight and I'm like, that guy's shooting over there. They're shooting at the tower. I don't know why he's shooting at a rock, but it, it was just chaos. And, uh, you know, it kind of questioned like who you should trust. When I bumped into Captain Ali again during the Koran search that we were training these guys, this man had, he, I, he was doing what he needed to do for his country. You get what I'm saying? And, you know, that kind of made me go, there's leadership to follow. And then there's just leadership to watch. And this dude was who you wanted to follow. And some of the things that he did for his country, I'm not going to say they were legal or wrong to do, but, you know, you don't want to mess with this guy. You, you don't want to mess with him. So that's what we did for that whole deployment is just train these soldiers and get them to do what they needed to do for their country. And that leadership, Captain Ali, really reflected that. So that's what we did for that year. What about your own personal safety? My priority was my battle buddies. I was never complacent. It's not good to be complacent. Complacency kills. So if I wasn't scared, that's where it starts really messing with your head. You know, you don't want to get comfortable in a place like that. As for my safety over there, I felt pretty safe with the people I was around. And I'm pretty sure they felt safe around me during that deployment. What sticks in your mind most from particularly the second deployment? I had a leader, I had a well, squad leader at that time. Uh, we were volunteered, forceful, you know, a tower guard, security for our FOB. And these guard shifts would run anywhere from four to six hours. And there was like three rotations or four. And I remember that I was telling my, my battle buddy at that time, Hey man, uh, when we get off of here, let's go eat something at the chow hall so we don't have to take that long walk back. You know, I planned ahead. Well, this guy would always get food brought over <laughs> to him over the mail. You know, tuna. I think his thing was tuna and Capri Suns. He's like, no nah, man, I think I'm gonna go to Chew. And at you know, you can't go to a to go eat at the defect without a battle buddy. It doesn't matter if your squad is there. Somebody's going to see you. It's a, it's a small fob. It's a mile by mile. And uh, we're coming down and I'm arguing with him like, dude, let's go to the chow. He's like, no, chew, chow, chew. And me being a mortar, I heard mortar rounds being shot. Now, that this, a lot of people confuse mortar rounds with cannons and shit. Cannons, cannons shoot straight. We shoot up. Motors shoot up. We're high angle hell. We shoot the bullet up and we want it to land right on top of your head. That's what we do. 60s, 81s, 120s. We're going to do that. The cool thing about it is you, a rocket, a cannon, you can hear, you can hear the round traveling. A motor round, you won't hear it. So you have to hear the initial boom from your enemy. So I heard a lot of boom, 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 boom. I told him to shut up while he was next to me. I said, shh, 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 shut up. 
like, what, man? I said, those are motor rounds. No, they're not. And I thought that was funny because he was in a squad leader position and I wasn't. And for him not to recognize motor rounds being shot out kind of twist, you know, kind of threw me off for a loop. So he's like, whatever, let's go to, let's, let's go to the choose. I'm like, chow, choose, chows. The first round ended up hitting about, I want to say about 200, 300 meters. About, yeah, about 200 meters away from us. And uh, our both reaction was, what the fuck? He looks at me and I remember grabbing him and pulling him into a gravel of rocks because during that time we had bad weather with rain and Iraq is not sand, Iraq is mud. So they piled up these gravels of rocks, really tall rocks, uh, mounds, and I pulled them over there and I can see the other rounds exploding, coming closer to us. But they, they were doing this technique called bracketing, which is they put around the front, around the back, and then one in the middle. Those three rounds hit and I don't see explosion, I see smoke, which this is Willie P. And, you know, I, my head started putting it together. This is Willie P round. What's Willie P? The only way I can describe it, if you ever seen the movie uh, Black Hawk Down, it was when it explodes, it's like metal melting and water does not turn it off. You have to like smother it with mud. Got it. You're talking about white phosphorus. Yeah. So, and the smoke is horrible. If it gets in your lungs, it's like gas chamber for a week damage on your lungs. So (laughs) uh, he's telling me, okay, let's go. And I'm like, wait, 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 no, there's one more. And he says, what do you mean? And that last round hit a lot closer. And I'm telling him, okay, now's the time. We, we ran through that smoke. And the weirdest part is our LT, our lieutenant, platoon leader. He's out there full battle rattle. And he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? We're like, dude, we just got off of tower guard. And he's like, get the hell out of there. So we're running to him. And, uh, you know, my, my buddy says, dude, how did you know that last round was coming? I was like, well, you're still listening to the explosions. I'm listening to the booms of the rounds being taken off. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think I, I don't feel like I saved his life. I feel like we just had a moment together there. And that happens a lot with the people you serve with. You have those moments that you go, that's the craziest moment. I'm glad somebody was there to, to witness it with me. Well, you, you say that, but you probably did save the guy's life. I mean, there's your training kicking in. You were listening very differently. So it's, uh, it's very, very compelling. So you, there you are in Iraq, you finish this tour and then you head back to the US. How long was that until you actually got out of the army? So before I I got back home to the States, while I was deployed the second time, uh, my first contract was going to be up three years. It was going to be up. And I knew that by the time it was done, there was no way in hell they were going to send me back. A lot of soldiers were stop loss at that point and before that point. So I figured, why not get a bonus? Why not secure? I didn't know if I wanted to make a career out of it. I just knew that. And, and my platoon knew that I, while I was deployed, I was a soldier first and then a father, and then a husband. While I was back in the States, father first and then a husband. So I reenlisted for another three years. Come back, we're down for like maybe a year or two. And rumors are popping off that, you know, we're probably going to be there six months. We're probably going to be there just eight or, or a year. Ended up being the worst of the worst. We ended up getting redeployed again for 15 months. And we were the last, one of the last units to do that. 
that's when the trouble really started with me because um, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it back. And one of the biggest factors in all of that was everybody I was ever deployed with, those two deployments, they were gone. They were gone. I got, the platoon got refreshed with new cherries, with freshly pecked stems on top of their heads. Uh, I don't want to say the leadership were cherries because they weren't, but some of them had came straight out of drill sergeant school. So they'd never been deployed. This is their first deployment. This is my third one. So you were the really experienced guy. What are they, what were you known as? At that point I had failed maybe my sixth or seventh failed urinalysis, my drug screening in the military. So I kept on getting demoted. The highest rank I've ever achieved in the U S army was specialist promotable. I started realizing rank. I mean, you respect the rank, uh, but uh, it didn't mean crap to me. And I wasn't known as a cherry anymore. Nobody was doing crazy stuff to, you know, while I ranked up, but yeah, I was known as the private major. There's no such rank as, you know, private major, but I was known as the private major at that point and didn't matter what I needed or who I asked. I was the private major. I was the guy who did more time and I could have gone anywhere else. You know, after once re-enlisting, I could have gone anywhere else and I chose not to. I chose to stay with the same unit, same platoon. And I forever knew, be known as the sergeant major. So were drugs a big part of service life in operations or back in the U.S.? Well, my first deployment, I would say till I got back to the States. My second deployment, I kind of got away with a few stuff, but that was, you know, during my R&R stuff, you know, my R&R time. Uh, but it was always back home. I mean, because you can't find that stuff in Iraq. It's not, you know, you can't go up to... Habib and be like, hey, you got some hashish, man? And he's looking at you like he doesn't know what that means, you know? For you, is that more self-medication, a way of coping with things or just calming down? Absolutely. I'm not a big alcoholic. I, I'm not a big drinker, let me put it like that. I mean, I was a big drinker in the infantry, but I seen the damage that did with a lot of uh, mood-altering medication or pain medication, and I didn't want to fall again into that bracket. I didn't see my cannabis usage as a bad thing. And I don't think the army or my leaders did either. And that's why they kept me in because they didn't really, they'd say it's wrong. Don't do it. You know, and I don't think anybody could get away with it today. Don't get me wrong. You, I think you have, if you get one DUI, they kick you out now. I've had nine failed urinalysis in six years and they did not kick me out and I have an honorable discharge and I have DD-214 to prove that. I was good at what I did and I figured either I stopped using cannabis or the army would stop giving me drug screenings. And, you know, I guess neither of us learned, but yes, it was a real great coping method when it came to sleeping, when it came to eating when it came to pain, when it came to memories, yeah, the cannabis helped a lot. And I rather had to use cannabis than alcohol because alcohol is temporary. Cannabis tends to last a little bit longer. So, so you're in that period of time, that 14 month, that final deployment, and, and you worried about you wouldn't make it back. What was happening there to you and, and what ultimately led to you leaving the army? Honestly, corruption. 
and I don't mean just corruption. I don't want people to think corruption within the ranks or within our leadership, but bigger scale. The longer you're there, bigger the picture starts getting together with these pieces. What it was, was hearing a leader tell me something that I really looked up to and seeing how the standard had fallen. The standard had fallen since, you know, we were there. Leadership just started falling short and taking advantage of their position. And I, 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 did, I didn't want to be like them. And I knew the longer I'd stay there, the longer I would end up being like them. And I didn't want that. I wanted to be my own leadership. I wanted to be, you know, the king of my own castle. I got the tools that I needed. Now it's time to make my own mold, you know, be the person I know I can be. That's basically why I had to get out. It was just, I don't know. I mean, I'm picking up you're quite a positive person and you're very forward looking. And so to hear you kind of talk about a leader that you had respected to then that be removed by something they're saying, it clearly has a big profound impact on you. The way I see it is like two wrongs don't make a right. And just because somebody does a thousand good things and does one horrible bad thing, you know, we should overlook that bad thing. And I think when we ended up overlooking a certain scenario that cost soldiers lives and who was responsible for it, that's when, you know, that's when you start going, man, I got to rearrange my priorities on this. You know, I felt like I failed a lot of people. I failed a lot. I would, I would fail them even more if I continued that path and I didn't want to continue that path. I didn't want to disappoint anybody else. I knew I was going to see a lot of people pass away this, that 15 month deployment. I knew it. And it, that's exactly that ha- what happened. I, I, I didn't want to see it anymore. The picture was already clear for me. So there's no point in looking at it anymore. And now it's stuck in my head. <laughs> Do you stay in touch with any of your former team members from any of the deployments? I mean, I've unfortunately had a lot of friends pass away when they got out of the army, whether it was negligent discharge of a weapon, drinking and driving, you know, things that were warned about when we're in the army, you know, and then some guys are, you know, have completely lost it. And I'm not saying they're crazy or anything. I'm just saying they've completely lost touch with the frequency of not just the earth, but of the people around them, you know, and you, they're never where you last seen them at. You never see these people. You never find them where you last seen them at. And then you start wondering. And during that time that you're like, are they okay? They've done a 180 on you. You know, and but most of it has to do with pain medicine since they got out. Most of it has to do with mood altering medication after they got out. Sometimes their significant other leaves them, takes the kids. They just go down a bad spiral. And ironically enough, none of it has to do with cannabis. You know what I'm saying? But it's pill popping. It's alcohol drinking. So, William, you're a veteran, a father, a husband. What would you tell your 17-year-old self based on what you know now? Choose something that you can use once you get out. Find a job that you can use the tool set that they're going to give you to apply to the civilian world. Push hard, but don't break yourself. <laughs> I broke myself a lot for the army. 
I broke myself hard. Don't stop smoking. <laughs> That's what I tell my 17 year old self. Don't stop smoking when you get in, man. Don't pick up alcohol. Just keep smoking, man. You'll be fine, at least during that time frame, you know. Thank you for joining us on Conflict Chronicles. You can stay in touch by connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a story or know of a story that should be told, contact us by our webpage at the My Story section, conflictchronicles.com.